Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Today on the podcast, we have Deborah Braudigam. Deborah is a professor of international political economy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. She's also the director of the China Africa Research Initiative, or CARI, also at Hopkins. Deborah is a leading expert on China and Africa and has authored many books, papers, and articles on this subject, including the book The Dragon's Gift The Real Story of China in Africa, which is about the history of Chinese aid, infrastructure building, and engagement with the African continent from post-World War II to the present. Enjoy the show. Hi, Deborah. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Curtis. Good to be here. Okay, so Chinese aid and infrastructure building and the Belt and Road Initiative, all very hot topics in recent years. But I think it's fair to say that you've been writing and researching about this space for a long time, much longer than is usual. You first went to West Africa, I think, in 1983, right, to research Chinese aid in Liberia. And you actually wrote your book, The Dragon's Gift, about Chinese aid and infrastructure in Africa back in 2009, which was before BRI and everything was announced in 2013. So let's begin here. Why was this an interesting question to you in the early 1980s when I don't think really anyone else was paying attention to it? Yeah, I'd like to think that I was really prescient, that I knew one day this would be a really hot topic. But I have to say, <laughs> The Dragon's Gift was actually my second book, or my third, really. But the first book that I wrote about China and Africa sank like a stone. Nobody was interested in that topic at all. But I was because I was a student not only of China, I was a sinologist who studied Chinese and lived in Taiwan and Hong Kong for a year and a half, did intensive Mandarin. But I was interested in China's development model, and I was interested in how they had gone through this whole cultural revolution period, and then they had started to move to the market. And I wanted to see what aspects of that, if any, were reflected in their aid program. I wanted to know if they did things differently than the way the West was doing aid in Africa. So that's what I went off to study. At that point, I was looking mainly at agriculture. And so you go off to study for your PhD research in the early 1980s. What were the biggest key takeaways, the biggest learnings from this early field work in West Africa? I think it was more than Liberia, right? You went, you went elsewhere? I was in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and the Gambia. So I wanted to pick three different countries with different experiences. And I think the main takeaway is, and it was the argument of my first book, was that even though the Chinese started out the same in all three countries, and they started the same because in all three countries, well, in two of the three countries, they picked up projects that Taiwan had abandoned when the country concerned switched diplomatic ties from Taiwan to Peking or Beijing. And so the Taiwanese went home and there are these agricultural projects that they were also doing there. So they all started out the same, but they all ended up very differently. And so my argument was that it really was not so much what the Chinese were doing, but what the African governments did that determined the outcomes of these projects. And I think that kind of finding is still very salient today. It's not so much 
what the Chinese do, it's what their partners do that really determines what happens and, and the fate of what happens overseas. Because it's much more influential. A host government who's there on the ground, they're the ones that have the wherewithal to make or break these projects. And this gets back to a theme from your 2009 book, which is feeling the stones, right? Really kind of tailoring to local context and responding and being adaptive over time, which we'll get to throughout the conversation here. But first, you have this great bit in The Dragon's Gift, the 2009 book, where you sort of go over the historic trends in aid over the decades. And you started in post-World War II with President Truman's, I think it was 1949 inaugural address, where he stressed the need to give assistance in developing countries as part of this battle between democracy and communism, putting aid in sort of a Cold War context. And back then, the Truman administration saw aid as aiming to increase industrial activity, right, and, and boost production. And you have a good Truman quote in your book where he said, greater production is the key to prosperity and peace. And the key to greater production is a wider and more vigorous application of modern scientific and technical knowledge. And I think this is generally correct. Then I look at, for example, the World Bank today, and most of their projects have shifted from infrastructure projects and factories pre-70s to largely health and education and more kind of social welfare projects today. And then you know, on the other hand, you have China, the ostensible communists in the room. And now the Chinese seem to be the ones focusing on these Truman type projects that boost industrial activity and, and production. So it's a big irony to me, a sort of reversal of roles. So in your view, what happened to bring these shifts about? Well, there were a few things that happened in the West. I think with regard to the Chinese, they didn't really shift. They're applying their thinking in China, which was that industrialization, adding value to raw materials. This is how you move up the value chain. And they would think of this as structural transformation. So that's for them what development is about. It's about moving up the value chain. It's about increasing the application of science and technology to production processes, becoming more sophisticated in those areas. And to do that, you need some basic things like you need roads, you need ports, you need electricity. And so this is energy intensive, it's infrastructure intensive. So that's what they do. And that's what they think. And that's what worked for them. Although there are debates amongst people who study China about whether they invested in infrastructure at an early period or a later period. I think it's clear that even though there's some disputes about that, they did invest in infrastructure. And if you just look at their development of roads, highways, railways, whatever you look at, ports, it's quite dense. And when you look at the African continent, we see a, a paucity of infrastructure. It's extremely sparse. Paved roads, access to electricity, even the quality of ports, railways, it's poor, it's weak, and what's there, much of it is left from the colonial period. And so what happened in the West was that there was an emphasis on going into these projects in the 1970s, and then they had ran into problems. Part of it was problems with maintenance. Part of it was problems with corruption. Part of it was that a lot of the companies that were trying to get these projects going were accepting or giving kickbacks to the governments. And the governments themselves were weakly able to maintain the project. So the infrastructure investments that went in, there was a feeling amongst the donor community that they weren't necessarily good uses of that money. But then there was a second thing that happened, which was the rise of non-governmental organizations, NGOs. And so that kind of 
lobbying activity push the way that we were thinking of aid into different sectors. So aid into basic human needs, for example, that started to get big in the 70s and into the 80s. There was also a whole thrust of aid into policy reform. So trying to to get countries to have better policies, and later that turned into better governance. So it's really been a shifting recipe, I would say. I make that argument in The Dragon's Gift, too. But the West has had a shift, always a belief that we know what Africa needs to do and poor countries need to do. We're quite sure what they need to do. But that surety shifts over time. So it's uh, the recipe keeps changing. And so it moved away from infrastructure. And I think there were some good reasons to be critical of what happened. I think the Chinese are running into some of the same problems with maintenance and with uh, some white elephant projects and not always careful feasibility studies and the, the lack of follow through by the host governments. And there are a number of cases where the host governments have not been able to keep the projects going or take them and run with them the way a Chinese entity would be able to do in China. But the West went too far in the other direction, so basically abandoned infrastructure. There are some who say that the kinds of things that we've gone into in the West, for example, health and education, are things that perhaps local governments should be doing more of for themselves. But we have cases where there are some, I remember some counties in Kenya where they had more services being provided by Western NGOs than were being provided by the Kenyan government. And some might argue that this takes away from the pressure on governments from their citizens to provide those services themselves if foreign aid is providing it on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had Sebastian Malaby on our podcast earlier this year, who's a journalist. He wrote a book on the World Bank, and he mentioned something similar about the rise of NGOs and especially their influence on the bank and what it focuses on and their ability to sort of if not gum up the bank's ability to act decisively, then at least shift focus from its historical focus on infrastructure to these other sectors. And one of the things I'll never forget, I was, this was in, in Ghana, this was in Ghana in 2010, I think I went up North and there's a city in the North of Ghana called Tamale. And it's basically just a town full of Western NGOs. It's like an NGO town. That's just a bunch of foreigners that dominate this town. And it was the weirdest, strangest, thing I remember. What I kind of took from that afterwards was, you know, a lot of people criticize the Chinese for these projects not being accountable to the locals or the host countries. But you could make the same critique of a lot of these NGOs. They're not technically accountable to the locals or the host country. They're they're accountable to their boards and, and to their donors. And, and so, yeah, that was one of the takeaways for me. I think a lot of people in developing countries appreciate the services and the help that NGOs are providing, but there is that feeling also that they are sort of a, operating extraterritorially. <laughs> the Chinese, it's an interesting thing about accountability. I think they do tend to be accountable to the host government, but maybe not to the parliaments or not even to all the different parts of the government. They're always accountable to the presidents. So, you know, when the president wants them to do something, they'll hurry up and do it quickly. So they really have this fine-tuned sense of who's running the country and who they need to be accountable to. Yeah, I read this study, I think it was Aid Data at the College of William and Mary, where they found that when it's a Chinese aid project, aid gets a little skewed towards the president's home district relative to World Bank-run projects. So 
They would have no problem at all doing that. I've even seen, you know, Chinese news reports saying, oh, yes, and we put these little schools in the president's hometown and yay, wasn't that a good move? (laughs) That's a good thing from this conversation so far kind of hints at this model of the aid sector that crystallized to me reading through your book. And I want your thoughts on this. So basically, maybe what I see this model as is aid as a tool of maybe foreign policy and an instrument of of sort of real politic. And these swings in geopolitics over time is why perhaps you see swings in what's in vogue in the aid sector during any given year or decade. And the part in your book that spoke to me about this was there was this transition from Truman's boosting industrial activity and production in the 1950s towards this more integrated rural development, IRD, in the late 60s. And that lasted a decade or so under McNamara at the bank. And then this could be seen as a way to sort of stem off the Red Scare at that time, prevent rural areas who were the most susceptible to communist propaganda from sort of being wooed by communism. And then there's the side point that the fact that McNamara, who before he became president of the bank in 68, he led the bank's transition of rural development. He was actually secretary of defense and in charge of the Vietnam War. So this kind of fits in with this more geopolitical model of aid. And then you fast forward a bit, and in the 60s, when international competition, or sorry, I should say the 1990s, when international competition was uh, reduced with the end of the Cold War and the dissolution of the USSR, you had Western aid agencies perhaps get a little complacent. There was no other competitors or suppliers of aid. So in every other market, when you're you're the sole sort of monopolistic supplier, there was a lack of inventiveness and maybe innovation in aid. And fast forward again to today with China's rise, you have this increasing international competition again. And there is increasingly another aid option, another aid supplier on the table. Some perhaps Western aid agencies have to get more creative. They have to shake off this complacency and get a little more competitive to be attracted to recipient countries. So I guess is what I'm saying is perhaps China's increased foray into the aid world could have some indirect benefits by just kind of waking up some of these Western aid agencies after a pretty long stupor. That was long-winded, but does this more geopolitical model of the aid sector resonate with you? Well, I think aid is a geopolitical instrument. You know, it comes from governments, except if we're talking about the non-governmental sector. But when we're talking about the U.S. government and other governments and the aid they provide, it is about geopolitics. And aid has to be voted on by Congress. And so Congress is subject to influence by different stakeholders. And so I haven't studied this back in the 1960s and 70s, but I do know that back in that period, construction firms and the kinds of businesses that would benefit from that kind of infrastructure projects were much more powerful in the United States. There were just more of them. If you look at how the top 100 firms in the engineering and construction sector have changed over time, it's really been quite remarkable. Even in just the past 20 years, there used to be a number of U.S. companies in that top 100 that are just not there anymore. And instead, Chinese companies have taken their place, essentially. And so this creates these constituencies that are the domestic pressure for spending. And you can see that now it's consulting firms and NGOs so that our money is going into health and into mainly health, if we look at Africa, 
it's about 70% into health. And so there are a whole bunch of, and I'm saying this, my university, Johns Hopkins University, our school of public health gets a huge amount of money from this, you know, because we're sending teams out there. Yeah, Bloomberg gets some money from Bloomberg, but we also get it from the US government to support things like PEPFAR and the other health programs that are out there. So we've got teams out there that are monitoring all this. A number of my former students are, are working for those entities. But these are the ones that then keep you know that pressure going because it's their interest now, and they believe that's important, and it is important. But it's no longer the Bechtels and the other construction firms that are there lobbying for projects. But in China, it's not like that. It's the construction firms that are lobbying. So they're the ones that want that aid money to to be sent into infrastructure projects. And the Chinese see this as win-win because they do have overcapacity in these sectors and they need to move it offshore. So it sort of ebbs and flows. If they need a stimulus back home, which is the case now, they're going to be emphasizing infrastructure back in China again because that creates a stimulus for growth at home and there's less finance available. We've seen a kind of collapse of the overseas development finance. And I'd say one more thing, Curtis, that we're talking about this in terms of aid, but for the Chinese, really, if you look at their finance that's coming out of China that's going into infrastructure, by and large, more than half of it is commercial, quite a bit more than half, I would say. And the subsidized portion is really, in Africa, it's only about 15 to 20%. So the rest of it is commercial finance. And then we get into some very interesting comparisons because you're not really comparing with USAID anymore, which gives grants. You're comparing with the bond market because that's the other big source of money for infrastructure. If the bilaterals and the multilaterals are not providing money for infrastructure, but you can issue a bond, then you can use that bond money to build your roads and pay for infrastructure. So that's the other source, aside from the Chinese, the other major source. (laughs) And this is good, because this kind of takes us back for a second, because in the book, you write about China's early experience with aid. And this early experience is really China's experience as an aid recipient. And you say that this early experience is key to understanding China's current practices around its infrastructure building today. And so you talked about Japan's foray into India, first in 1958, I think, this Goa formula, which was then used as the model to establish an aid relationship, or or it was really more a mutually beneficial relationship, not an aid relationship with China in 1973. So can you talk about this Japanese Goa formula and its impacts on Chinese practices today? Well, what the Japanese did in Goa was to provide finance for coal. I think it was a coal mine. And there may have been infrastructure associated with that. And then they allowed India to repay that with coal exports. And so that was a way of securing a loan in a risky country, building something that could then create revenues out of, I don't remember all the details of that, but I think it was coal related because I remember just the visuals of the devastation around that. I think it was iron. I probably read the book more recently than than you did. Okay. So it was iron ore, but they secured that loan with exports. So it was iron ore and not coal? Yeah. Okay. Because in China, it was coal, coal and oil. So they developed the same kind of approach. And they did this in the 1970s before China was a member of the World Bank, before other international banks were operating in China. It was a highly risky place. And so... It was actually the Chinese government and the Japanese government got together and negotiated this 
deal, which involved commercial banks from Japan, but it was brokered by the government. And it was that they would provide a $10 billion line of credit. And China could use that to have Japanese companies develop ports and other kinds of important infrastructure. And it would be repaid by oil exports and coal exports that were already going to Japan. So they set this up with escrow accounts and how their relationship began. And it was only later that they started providing foreign aid. So the first relationships were these commercial loan relationships. So basically, just to sum up, the Japanese financing came not just with aid money, but with the needed equipment and the technical training. And it wasn't given in exchange for nothing (laughs) in return from India in the first case, and then later China. Japan was guaranteed imports of important raw materials from India, iron, from China, oil and coal. And I think in the Indian case, India gave Japan something like 2 million tons of ore per year for 10 years to repay the loan. My question is, I guess, other than China today, do Western countries engage in this sort of commodity-backed aid? For example, what I first thought of when I read this bit of your book was the DRC and Zambia, with lots of the minerals needed in the production of new batteries, increasingly important in the rise of solar. So other than China, are any Western actors going in and saying, hey, Zambia, hey, DRC, in exchange for X amount of these battery-related minerals, will not only give you the money needed to extract these minerals, but also state-of-the-art equipment and, if needed, technical training and management. Does this happen, or is this just China? In the DRC, of course, China is doing this, and it's Chinese state-owned companies, mainly in the construction area, and they've gone into mining, so they have a iron ore export. It's the revenues, actually, from the exports that have secured these infrastructure lines of credit in the DRC. What we see, and the Chinese have not done this in Zambia for a very important reason, which is that Zambia privatized all of their copper mines. So they don't really have assets that they could use that the government controls so that they could use to partner with the Chinese in this kind of area. So this has not happened in Zambia at all. It did happen in the past, but not with the Chinese. Zambia had mortgaged its copper exports for these kinds of uh, deals in the past. But that was many, many decades ago. So when they privatized their mines, they weren't any longer able to do that. They have since bought or they're buying sort of on a timeshare deal. (laughs) They've rebought back one of their mines and so they're paying for it. But they're going to have to use those copper exports to pay the owner, I think it was Glencore, for that mine that they purchased. And they're going to have a lot of extra, at least for quite a while until they pay off that loan, essentially the loan that they used to buy the mine. But you ask our Westerners or or entities in the West, and I would say absolutely entities in the West are doing this. And what's happening is it's the commodity traders that do this. And so they provide much shorter term lines of credit, but they don't link them to infrastructure. So these are lines of credit that are then repaid by these exports. And the term of the loans is much shorter than what the Chinese provide, which is usually around 10, 15, even 20 years. So, but do Western governments do it? The answer there is no, they don't. And there's these kinds of commoditized loans have a bad reputation, I would say, in the West. The World Bank and the IMF don't like them. The reason why they don't like them is that what happens when you have a loan like this is that you have exports going off through a contractual relationship to a buyer. And then part of those exports 
go into an escrow account that is then used to repay those loans. You know, it could be Glencore, Trafigura, these Swiss-based commodity traders are big at using this, and they've been using it in South Sudan and Republic of Congo, DRC, and other places. But that means that other lenders, they don't really have, these are not very transparent. They don't know what's happening with these export revenues that the country should be earning. They're not really coming back to the country. And so they aren't available for other lenders who may have also made loans to this country. So it's an untransparent way of doing lending. And the World Bank and the IMF, the IMF in particular, would really like countries not to do this anymore and just to set things up into a straight where the government, the central government just pays for the loans out of their general balance of payments the way they would do with others. But the lenders say, well, you know, we're not willing to lend like that because the cost of lending them because the risks go up so much if you don't secure the loan somehow. And so it, the country wouldn't be able to really afford this external credit. And it's not like a lot of other countries are lining up to provide infrastructure finance in a place like the DRC. So what's different about the Chinese loans and why I think that they have a huge advantage is these commodity traders, as I mentioned, they don't link their loans to infrastructure and the Chinese do. And there are lots of challenges with that. For example, is the infrastructure going to be well supervised? Are they going to have bidding, you know, competitive bidding on it? The way Angola set it up was actually quite clever. They ensured that there were at least three Chinese companies bidding on every project. So there was competition. So that was one way they tried to ensure that they got better prices. And they also hired a German engineering company called Gulf to supervise all of the infrastructure that the Chinese companies were building in Angola. And as a result, you really don't hear, of course, Angola is not a very open country in terms of news media, but you don't hear that much about problems with the infrastructure. It seems to be being built and holding up and so on. Yeah. One thing that leapt out at me about China's early aid experience, this is going back to 70s, 80s, I guess, was that it was between 67 and 76, you said, Chinese aid, which was at that time, China was very poor. At that time, I think incomes per capita were around $115. So very, very poor. And yet, between those years, 67 and 76, you said they averaged around 5% of government spending each year went towards aid. And this is under Mao during the Cultural Revolution. So China was giving away 5% of its government expenditure every year. And I was like, this is even way more than the typically less than 1% of government spending that now really rich countries give. So how was this possible? How was this justified? I, I just couldn't wrap my head around that when I saw that figure. You know. It was a time when they were really trying to build alternatives and support in the developing world for two reasons. One was the support for socialism. This was aid money that went to North Korea. It was aid money that went to this huge Tanzam railway in Tanzania and Zambia. And it was money that went to other socialist countries. So the Chinese were trying to create this alternative or bolster this socialist alternative to what the West was doing. But the other thing that was really important is that some of this money, and I wouldn't say it's the lion's share by any means, but there was this full court press to try to wrest diplomatic recognition away from Taiwan. Because in the 1960s, up until 1971, more countries recognized Taiwan as the government wall of China. It's just a one China policy. Peking or Beijing was completely out 
And Taiwan sat in the United Nations, they sat in the Security Council, and this was the Republic of China or Taipei. And there was just like, they ignored that there was another part, (laughs) that there was this whole government in charge of the mainland that didn't have any representation anywhere. So the Chinese were using aid as part of the thank you package and more part of the lure to get countries to break off ties with Taipei and recognize Beijing. And so that was happening at the same time. So that was an investment. But it wasn't really the big money. The big money was much more North Korea. Yeah. And you mentioned the Tanzam Railway. So let's go there. So Tanzam is the Tanzania-Zambia Railway. I think you said it was the largest Chinese aid project undertaken at that time. It was built between 1970 and 1975. And the World Bank turned this project down. They said it was not feasible. I think other richer governments turned it down as well. But China built this railway anyways. (laughs) Um, And at the time, I think it was some 2000 kilometers long, right? The longest railway on the continent that went from the copper mines in Zambia's north to the port of Dar es Salaam in in Tanzania on the Indian Ocean. So what lessons did China, and this is in its early phase of aid giving, what lessons did China take from this huge gargantuan Tanzam project? On the one hand, they did learn a lot of lessons. And one of the important ones was the problem of building something and then turning it over to the host government and then hoping that it will be sustainable. Jamie Monson, who's a professor at Michigan State University and the head of the African Studies program there, has done a lot of research on this railway. And she shows how well they tried to train people. You know, during the Cultural Revolution, when the universities were shut down in China, they opened up the Jiaotong University, the sort of railway and transport university, so that they could bring people from Tanzania and Zambia to train them in China. So they were training them on all these different aspects of railway engineering. When those people went back to those countries, they were well-trained, they were engineers, and they got jobs somewhere else. So they didn't necessarily get jobs on the railway. And so they couldn't actually ensure that well-trained people were keeping these railways maintained. And then the countries were very poor. So just keeping up with the spare parts and what it costs to run a modern big railway like that was hard for them. And they were also mismanaged. So here were these big state-owned enterprises, and they could shovel in supporters and provide jobs for them. So they all had multiples more uh, people working for them than were really needed. So it was hard to keep them afloat in terms of just the operations and maintenance, let alone repaying the loan. So they sent people back to help, you know, they sent Chinese technicians to help keep it running. And that has gone on. Sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not there. It went on for many decades. But there was a lesson that I think they didn't learn. And that was why I've sometimes used this phrase more recently to talk about Tazara syndrome. And I think Tazara syndrome is this almost this kind of pride that the Chinese banks and the Chinese funders and the government get from funding a project that nobody else wants to fund. Monumentalism, right? Yeah, that's one way of putting it, monumentalism. But it's they have this idea that these projects can stimulate growth, they can have a multiplier effect, they can have externalities beyond the project itself. All those things are probably true, but I think they're over-optimistic about it. And so they would say, oh, the World Bank's analysis says that this won't be cost-effective. Well, 
we think that this looks like something that has a lot of potential anyway. And it's almost like the field of dreams. I know one of my colleagues has written about a train that's being built in Southeast Asia by the Chinese. It's partly a, a direct investment by them. And he has this field of dreams approach. They build it and they will come. They don't always come. That's, that's part of the problem. And so I think they've overdone it in a number of cases. You can look at Hamantota Port in Sri Lanka. Uh, we could talk about that. But that's one where there was a lot of optimism. I think that even the feasibility studies that were done for that were quite optimistic. They had Danish and there was a Canadian feasibility study. But when Sri Lanka got you know, when the port was built and the Sri Lankans were running it, they couldn't generate business. It was a lot harder than they thought to bring in the traffic. Yeah. Just so everyone knows, Tazara is another synonymous name for Tanzam Railway Project. This is interesting. On this topic of, you know, the Chinese could have this tendency or be charged to have this inclination to be a little pie-eyed and optimistic in their initial scoping of a project. I was reading some early documents around Senzhen SEZ, and there was a, I think the World Bank had looked at the project and saw that some of the Chinese kind of projections, and they were like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like the World Bank projections, I think the population in early, in the early 1980s was around 100,000 people, loose collection of fishing villages in, in Shenzhen. And they were projecting that I think by 2000 or the late 90s, that there would be 800,000 folks in Shenzhen. And of course, you and I know the story that, in fact, that was not optimistic at all. There were 7 million people in Shenzhen by 2000. And so I totally understand the pie-eyed thing that they can be a little overly optimistic and perhaps that allows them to greenlight a project that maybe should not have been greenlit. At the flip side, you know, <laughs> a lot of projects have overshot expectations a lot as well. And I'm cherry picking here, but Shenzhen is a clear example of that. I think the analysis and I've done this professionally myself, but project appraisal is really an art. It depends on your assumptions and assumptions are inherently you're guessing about these things. So you can make your guesses in a more optimistic way, or you can make them in a more pessimistic or realistic way. But we don't really know what, for example, we've been looking more recently at the standard gauge railway in Kenya, and we don't really know what's going to happen. What is the competitive environment going to be in East Africa? Is Tanzania going to get their railway built before the Kenyans get theirs into the DRC? And who's going to be able to bring the minerals out, which are really going to help pay for these railways? So it's a lot depends on on a lot of factors that you don't have control over. Mm -hmm. Have you seen interesting, this is just your standard gate railway fact prompted this. Have you seen any interesting ways to minimize risk around those demand, especially demand projections in these project appraisals? Because that's really the, that's really where it becomes an art. Like you're throwing a dart at a dartboard. Well, just to have a sensitivity analysis to the different assumptions I think with the SGR, the demand analysis is pretty sound, and it was not optimistic that the SGR would be able to repay the loans out of its revenues. It could meet its operating costs, but it wouldn't be able to repay the loans. And I think that's what our analysis showed, too. It doesn't. It isn't able to repay the loans. But I think that there's more when you look at what the railway has done for other parts of Kenya and what it could do. It's increased the value of Mombasa port because they're not just now they have the smooth transition, you know, it's from the port to the railway to the inland ports. And it's not like hundreds and hundreds of trucks that are all 
jostling there and a really inefficient, old-fashioned system. You know, in Europe, they've made a decision in 2011 to move all of their, if freight was more than 300 kilometers, they were going to move to moving it by uh, 30% of all the freight should move either by rail or by water by um, 2030. And by 2050, it should be 50%. And this is for environmental and congestion and safety reasons. So it's not just that it makes sense economically. In fact, it doesn't. But trucks and roads don't have the externalities that they cause, you know, the pollution and the congestion. They don't pay those those prices themselves. I mean, they might in the gasoline taxes and things like that. But there's a lot that they aren't necessarily paying for directly. I saw this in my research, but on the Tanzam rail project, a fun fact that I found was it turns out when Beijing hosted the Summer Olympics in 2008, the Olympic torch actually started in Tanzania at the Grand Terminal of the Tanzam Railway. So there you go, decades later, and it was still this huge point of pride. So to your point about monumentalism or uh, Tazara syndrome, uh, it's, it's alive and well in the 21st century. But this is a good transition to, I think, the BRI today, because you just talked about the standard gauge rail, for example. But China didn't build a railway in Africa after Tanzam for another 41 years until it had announced this new BRI, Belt and Road Initiative. And when it did start building railways again, it seemed to have learned from its experience with Tanzam, from some of the things that you brought up. And so it was only in, I think, 2016, 2017, trying to get back into the African rail building business with, I believe it was three different lines, the standard gauge rail that you mentioned, but also one in Nigeria, the Abuja Kaduna rail, and then one in Ethiopia and, and Djibouti, the Addis Djibouti railway line. And what I was reading was that there were kind of two main differences. One is while in Tanzam, Tanzam was 100% financed by interest-free loans, and these new lines were funded through interest-bearing loans, and they required, I think, a matching by the African governments. So there's skin in the game, number one. And then number two, while Tanzam was like you said, immediately handed over to the Zambian and, and uh, Tanzanian governments. These new railways today, they were actually instead concessioned, I think, to a Chinese operating company for the first, I believe, five five years or so. So what were the key ways in which Chinese aid has morphed and evolved from those early years to today? Well, the three railways that you've mentioned, none of them are financed, as far as I know, by Chinese aid. So these are all commercial projects or they're they have a preferential export buyer's credit, which is also, you know, not a foreign aid, not what we would call official development assistance. And so that speaks to an important aspect of this. That these projects are really projects that Chinese companies lobbied hard for. The governments wanted them, but the Chinese companies that built them also worked really hard. And they started working toward these projects long before the BRI was ever mentioned. So the Nigeria project, that goes back to the first decade of this millennium, where the Chinese started building portions of that. And it's rolled out very slowly, whereas the one in Ethiopia and the one in Kenya were much more rapid. But they were all started before the BRI became a thing. And they all represent uh, Chinese companies taking advantage of desires by the borrowing governments, the host governments. So for example, in 2004, the East African community made a decision that they were going to redo their railways and they were going to make it all standard gauge railway. 
This then created consulting firms coming in and doing studies. There were engineering firms coming in who wanted to do these projects and were closing up to the host governments. What happened in Kenya was a, a Chinese construction company said, we can, if you give us a contract for this, we can work really hard to get you finance. And so they went with a no bid arrangement. So it was a, a single source contract, which has ended up being politically quite contentious. In fact, it was even ruled to be illegal by a Kenyan court to procure the railway in this manner. And once the railway is already there, nothing's happened because <laughs> they can't ship it home again. And that's a common thing that Chinese companies do. That if they say, if you give us an EPC, an engineering procurement and construction contract, plus finance, then our responsibility is to, to go out and get the finance. And so they will lobby the bank, the China Export Credit Agency or China Development Bank. And these, in this case, all of these were China Export Credit Agency, Exim Bank. So they lobby that bank to support the project. And you mentioned management in your answer, and this was and continues to be, I think, a key point to me. You said it was, I think, first Premier Zhao in 1982 and 83 on his tour of Africa, where he started to, I guess, update or change the sort of early Chinese aid model a bit. Because one of the problems at the time was that when an aid project in Africa was finished, as you mentioned, and the Chinese managers left, the project would pretty quickly start to head south. And so Zhao, in order to address this, proposed that then Chinese managers should be embedded in these projects over the longer term to ensure proper maintenance and management of the project such that the initial investment was recouped. So this is interesting because this is kind of one of the things that a lot of Western aid gets criticized for is being overly project based. So the project is approved, money flows in and the project completes and money stops and the Western aid workers sort of transfer the project to the recipient government and then leave. Or like you said, it's sort of outsourced to this NGO community. When I read this, I saw this in some of the villages that I've worked in. And for example, in Sierra Leone, I was working with this agricultural social enterprise, the West African Rice Company. And it was a bunch of Argentinian farmers who had this rice company and other aid workers. And they actually own multiple farms and they live in the country and they've been there for many, many years. And then on the way, I remember this, we were driving to the farm and we passed this World Vision project sign in one of the villages. And one of the Argentinians he basically scoffs, world vision, what a waste. They get money for a project, they do the project, and then they leave, and then everything just goes back to the way it was. So here's my question. How do you balance the need for being managerially embedded in some of these projects to make them sustainable over the long term, on the one hand, with the need to respect sovereignty and local ownership on the other? No, Curtis, that's such a good question. And I think the entire aid community really grapples with this because this question about sustainability of a project's benefits is a really hard one to guarantee. I remember back in Liberia, <laughs> a friend there was running an agricultural project for USAID, and he was asked to write out a plan for how the project would be sustainable after aid funding ended. And so he wrote, well, it'll happen like this, this, and like that. And then the aid mission director said, no, you know, that's, it's not going to work like that. It'll do it over again. And so he said, okay, it'll happen like that, that, 
and this. <laughs> and then she said, no, no, that doesn't look like it's going to work. And then so he pondered and he said, there will be a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and the project will become sustainable. <laughs> and it just, you know, it was so sad because Liberia at that time in the 1980s, it was right before the Civil War hit. And it was none of those projects were sustained. Not that people knew the Civil War was going to happen in 1989. But it is really tough because Part of the challenge is actually what the aid community does in that we keep coming in with new projects. So all of those personnel and the people that were trained, first of all, we tend to hire them into our projects. So, you know, if someone's been nicely trained, we take them out of the government and we have them work for us or an NGO. And so they're... uh, The Tamale uh, NGO organizations. Yep. And then we also just, we spend a lot of government's time trying to just meet all the requirements that we have, you know, all the accounting requirements, uh, let alone all the different ways that we do projects. And so we make it harder for some of these governments to actually pay attention because we shift their attention onto the next thing. So they don't necessarily have the capacity to do both the next new thing and keep the old thing running. And so the Chinese saw that this was happening They did try, you know, it's part of the way they approach foreign aid, not necessarily their commercial projects, but the foreign aid ones, they do put a lot of emphasis on training people. But they saw, I saw two things that were happening back when I was looking more closely at the aid projects is that they would sit there and all the Chinese experts would be there. And they kept saying, would you please give us our counterparts, send the counterparts. And the counterparts would just not be assigned because there just wasn't anyone to send out there or anyone that was ready to go out there. Or they would be assigned almost when the project was almost ready to be finished. And so it was really hard for them to just pick up the the pieces and make it keep going. So they developed this way of having Chinese experts come in and they didn't come for free. So they actually had to be paid. I remember in, in the Gambia, they had to be paid something like $500 a month to pay for their salaries and their housing and all of this to keep the stadium running. Because uh, the the Gambian government wasn't able to just to take it over and keep the lights on and so on. And so that was really debated in China because they looked at it at first as being interfering in the internal affairs of the host government, you know, to actually be running these government-owned projects once the aid finished and completed. But in order to keep the benefits rolling, that's what they did. And so you can see, fast forward to today, that's exactly what happened in Kenya with the standard gauge railway. In fact, the initial contract was for 10 years. And it had within it, they said, after five years, both parties can reconsider this. But it was part of the contract that there should be a 10-year contract given to a Chinese company for 10 years. And they were training people. You know, they had people off in China going and doing master's degrees in engineering and all of this, but they're facing some of the same challenges. So you can't force those people to then come back and work for the railway. But the Kenyans, we'll see what happens. They decided after five years that they would take it over. And so we'll see how it works under Kenyan management. And I hope it'll work really well because they have the capacity to do it for sure. But then, you know, political interests can really undermine these state-owned enterprises and their abilities to be sustainable. It's a challenge. Yeah, this point about management is interesting because it came up recently when Chris Blattman was on the podcast a few weeks back to talk about his book. In some of his research on factories in Ethiopia, he makes the point that a huge constraint and challenge that the owners of these big factories have is 
finding middle managers and managerial talent that can actually administer these large factories effectively over time. And this was this was one of the key binding constraints. And I think Chris said, like, if I could go back sometimes in another life, I think I may have chosen to be a business consultant or management consultant or a banker, or an M&A guy in, in some of these countries, because that's the big talent or managerial gap in a lot of these places. That's so interesting because we've been training people and we've been putting a lot of money into for people to work for NGOs and the health and uh, things like this. And really management talent is huge. You know, the ability to engineers and managers, those sets of skills are pretty weak. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you probably get asked to compare Chinese and Western aid models all the time. And so I'm going to kind of do something similar here, but hopefully it's a little different than what you typically get. So if we step back a bit and we're told in economics that each party, whether it's an individual or a business or a country, each party should pinpoint its comparative advantage and specialize in that comparative advantage. So if I look at Chinese and Western aid models, they're actually, to me, in a lot of ways, pretty complementary. China builds things quickly and cheaply, but they lack transparency and are weak on other safeguards. The West takes a long time to build things and it's more expensive, but they are transparent, typically safer, follow more standard good governance practices, So I'm thinking there's room for specialization and division of labor to work their magic here, where China perhaps does the building and Western aid agencies do a lot of the advisory services and governance around the actual project. Are you in favor or not? What are your thoughts? You know, Curtis, that's actually happening right now at the World Bank, because the World Bank is pretty much a Western organization. You know, the U.S. has a veto there. And their infrastructure projects, the majority of those projects, at least in Africa, are carried out by Chinese companies. That's not necessarily the majority in terms of over 50%, but they're the largest single country. Companies from China win those contracts. And when they're running a World Bank project, they're doing it in a much more sustainable way. Those projects are only financed if the World Bank's analysis shows that the net present value will be positive and they'll have an internal rate of return. They can repay the loan. And environmental and social sustainability analyses are all carefully done. So we actually do have a model. So that's coming from the contributions of members like us. (laughs) It sounds like National Public Radio or something. But for the contributions of members, the contributions of the United States, China, Germany, all these other countries that contribute into IDA, which is all funded by donors. So could we do that outside of the World Bank? Well, one possibility is is actually expanding what the World Bank does and doing more infrastructure. Another possibility is having something like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which was set up by the Chinese as a majority shareholder. This is a very well-run bank. It's got membership of all the major players except the United States and Japan, (laughs) who both stayed out. Even England jumped in. The UK is a member Australia, all these others, France. And so the AIIB is a good example also of how you can use best practice and fund infrastructure. And this is a Chinese-dominated institution. So having that expand. And what you're not going to get is projects that are going to be as fast. You're not going to get the ones that are sort of questionable in terms of they have great externalities, but you know it's really hard to fit those into the model. But they might be better for a country's debt profiles because we are seeing... It's not as bad, I think, as many people think in terms of the Chinese 
role in the current debt situation in a lot of African countries, but in a number of countries, it is pretty bad. And Zambia, for example, Ethiopia, Republic of Congo, those are all places where Chinese lenders are the problem. And of course, the borrowers are the ones that borrowed it, but the Chinese are the, the number one creditor in those countries. And that's for infrastructure projects that were not carefully assessed. Basically, you're saying that this sort of specialization that I asked about is kind of happening already. I think the stat I remember from CSIS's Reconnecting Asia data set on Chinese-backed projects across the world, I think they found that they said Chinese finance projects contract with Chinese firms about 90% of the time. But multilateral finance projects like the bank that you talked about actually contract with Chinese firms too, to a surprising degree. I think their number was about a third. I think it was 29% of projects are contracted with Chinese firms. But to your point again, the World Bank isn't doing a lot of infrastructure projects anymore. So ideally, you know, they would shift a little bit to these much needed infrastructures and filling this huge infrastructure gap and deficit a little more. And then they have that specialization already in place. One of the things that I obviously want to talk about is we are the Charter Cities podcast. So one thing that we've been thinking about a lot at CCI is about what has happened historically when these huge infrastructure building initiatives occur, like BRI, and we now have a Build Back Better world And so looking back at some of the big historical infrastructure projects, they often result in urban agglomerations or new cities sort of forming around the nodes of these projects. We can look at the Erie Canal, which basically created Buffalo and Chicago and Detroit, St. Louis, same similar situation with Panama and the Suez, and even the interstate highway system during Eisenhower post-World War II resulted in this huge growth of the Sunbelt cities in the U.S., so I'm curious if you or anybody else at Cary or other BRI scholars you know of are, are sort of looking into this part of BRI and Build Back Better world. Well, the short answer is no. <laughs> no one at Cary is looking at this. But I do know that there are people in geography who have been looking at the sort of urban impact of Chinese infrastructure engagement. And mostly these are scholars in Europe, so either in the UK or in Germany, other places where they've been looking at that. I know this David Benazareff in France. He was one of the early people looking at that. And the Chinese have, for example, in Angola, one of the things that was financed was this city, Kalamba Kaishi, 100,000, I think it was the inhabitants for 100,000 people. Luanda, which is the capital of Angola, is one of the most expensive cities in the world. And I remember one of my colleagues was doing research for her dissertation there. She lived in somebody's garage and she paid the thousand dollars a month for this, like living in a garage on somebody's property. And it's just, you know, there's no housing. And so they built this city. And at first it was called a, a ghost city and it was really derided for being, you know, a terrible boondoggle. But then it filled up. And it's one of those ironies where, you know, the ghost city fills up and it's like prospering, doing well. And it's because the Angolan government was supposed to bring the water there and the sewage lines and so on. And they hadn't done that yet. So that's why there's kind of a lag in people being able to move in. But then, you know, it turned into a thriving city. But the reporters never went back. So (laughs) (laughs) that's always the case. Still out there kind of like people think, oh, yeah, the big ghost city and in Angola. And these scholars have made the argument that there are places where the skyline is being transformed by Chinese built buildings. 
even though I'm not doing research and none of us are on that at Kerry, I've seen this in Dar es Salaam, for example. You drive around Dar and there are these Chinese built buildings that are private that companies have asked the Chinese to build them and they really have reshaped the skyline. They've got some very innovative architects there too. So, so that is happening. With the railways, the idea is that these will stimulate towns and other development, and it will make it a lot easier for people to access their own products or agriculture products and things like this. I don't know if that's going to happen. You know, you gave examples of how it happened in our history, and it's possible. We do know that the absence of that kind of infrastructure across the African continent, you know that the potential for that is there. Mm -hmm. So one of the patterns that when we talk about this at CCI and, and read into it that we noticed was the infrastructure builder doesn't usually make its money back on just the user fees or the charges for the actual infrastructure. Like a road builder doesn't usually make all its money from tolls, right? What has been the case historically is that the infrastructure developer actually recoups most of its investment by owning the underlying land rights underneath or around the infrastructure. And then when people or economic activity is attracted to the area because of the new infrastructure, the land values appreciate. And so that's the model we've been seeing throughout history around the sort of new urban agglomerations around these infrastructure nodes. It's absolutely the case. So these could be real estate investments. And it's curious to me, I know that in Southeast Asia, the Chinese rail, one of the things that I've read about that is that they wanted to get access to land along the rail as part of the whole package for the investment package. It's a different model. It's not predominantly loan finance. There's, there's a lot more FDI going into it. But I have not seen anything like that in the African cases. And it's curious because I agree with you. This is how if you bring in rail, it's a new transport, and they're actually shifting. Like the place that the SGR, the Standard Gauge Railway, is going is just outside of these major centers. So it's creating opportunities. And the same in um, Ethiopia with Addis Ababa, the main terminus for the railway is, is not right in the middle of the city, because you can imagine how expensive that would be to bring that in, you know, and all of the people that would have to be moved and resettled. So it's outside of the city. But then you can see already there's construction going on, the housing and commercial activities building up around there where there was nothing before. But the Chinese have not nailed any of that for themselves. And they haven't tied that into the loan repayment, which is probably a missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I mean, these places like you mentioned, Addis Ababa and I think Kenya were the two you used these places are urbanizing really, really, really rapidly anyway. So there's going to need to be a buildup in urban infrastructure regardless of what happens. So there's a huge opportunity here. One of the places that came up was Hambantota and Sri Lanka. So I've read about this and the readings sort of span the spectrum from these dire sky is falling things to, oh, it's not that bad. Here's what happened. Do you know what actually happened in, in Hambantota? Because I've read both and it'd be great to get your insight. It's a complicated project, but this is the poster child for the accusation of debt trap diplomacy, which I think is a misnomer. But in 2017, the Sri Lankan government had difficulty in repaying this loan. This was a port that was not making money. So it was a money losing port. And so they concessioned the port to a Chinese investor. The Chinese government helped them do this. And then the Chinese investor paid $1.1 billion and they got a 99-year lease. It's a joint venture, actually, with the Sri Lankan Ports Authority. So they have this port now with this 99-year lease in this joint venture, and the Sri Lankan government got the $1.1 billion. So 
There are a number of different things that are problematic about the story as it's been told. The first is the, the New York Times, and I'm just going to nail them for this because they wrote a story about this, and the headline was how China got Sri Lanka to cough up a port. The first person that wrote this, that came up with the idea of debt trap diplomacy, didn't even do any research for this, just wrote an opinion piece about it. The New York Times went there. They couldn't get anyone in the government to talk to them. They couldn't get any of the Chinese to talk to them. So it seems like all they got were the people who were critical of the project to speak with them. And they repeated some of these things that people had been saying, which were not actually true. So for example, they said that the feasibility studies said the port would never work. And that isn't true. And my colleague Meg Rithmeyer at Harvard Business School and I have looked at these feasibility studies and they are both of them were very positive. One done by a Canadian company, one done by a Danish company that later got a contract to actually build out the plan, the master plan for the port. So they're both really positive. The mistake that the Sri Lankans made and the Chinese made in supporting this was that they decided to accelerate the rollout. So the first phase was done and they should have just waited until they got the business in and you know worked out the kinks. But instead, they decided to go ahead and fund the second phase of it early. And so that's why it wasn't making enough money yet, because it takes time. Just think of it in terms of an airport. You want to build a second airport in an area where all the planes are used to going to Heathrow. So, you know, you build Gatwick and nobody wants to go to Gatwick because they're used to going to Heathrow and they've all got their relationships there. So you have to have marketing campaign. You've got to have really cheap prices to bring them in. And that's how eventually you build up. For a new port, you've got a plan to run at a loss for at least 10 years. You have to have deep pockets and keep it going. And the Sri Lankans, they couldn't do that. You know, it wasn't making money. The loans had about a five-year grace period, and suddenly they had to start repaying. It wasn't making money yet. So they said, they basically came to the Chinese and said, take it back. We don't want it anymore. And the Chinese bank said, we can't just take it, but, you know, let's see what we can do in terms of getting an investor to come in and provide the infusion of equity there. So that's what happened. And the way Meg Rithmeyer puts it, she said, it's how Sri Lanka got China to cough up a port because they basically got this new port in a poorest region of Sri Lanka, which is the president's hometown. So there's this whole political vanity project aspect to this as well. It is an area that just about 10 miles off of the major shipping routes that go across the Indian Ocean. So there is a lot of opportunity for transshipment. So that would be Ships coming in, unloading part of their cargo onto other ships, and then part of that goes off to different parts of South Asia, India, Southeast Asia, and so on. And no other port is doing that in that region. And so there were a lot of people who said, we've got to invest in a port to do that before somebody else does it, because then we can start developing the business. And they were trying to take the business away from Singapore. So they were really thinking big. Maybe the same journalists who went to Hambantota were the same ones that went to Columba, Angola and wrote about <laughs> the ghost city. <laughs> maybe, just maybe. <laughs> well, you know, you see what you want to see sometimes or what you're already pre-programmed to see. There was another part of that article that really was wrong. They said that the loans started out cheap and then they kept getting more and more expensive. And that's the exact opposite. The very first loan was like $300 million and it was at a commercial rate. And then the loans after that were at 2% at a fixed rate. So they just they kept getting more and more concessional. So it's just wrong. Chinese are making it loans better and better and more affordable. 
So there's been a recent decline in Chinese infrastructure spending or or BRI related spending. I think the peak was in 2017 or 2019, I believe. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Do you think this decline has something to do with President Xi's so-called crackdown on corruption? Put another way, do you think this crackdown on corruption will affect China's infrastructure building in places like Africa, or is it purely a domestic thing? Because I'm thinking of the construction sector, and you know, it's not known as the like cleanest of sectors. So this is why I'm making the link. Now, construction is all around the world. It's known as a sector that's uh, rife with kickbacks, especially government-sponsored infrastructure. The anti-corruption campaign is pretty much a Chinese campaign. In 2011, the Chinese did pass a law inside China that made foreign corruption illegal. I think it's in their criminal code. I think it might be Article 60. I have it written down somewhere, but sure exactly which article it is. But they've never enforced it. So I don't think that there's been any connection of the Chinese anti-corruption campaign at home and the BRI. What's making the infrastructure lending slow down, and in our data for Africa, we actually, if you take Angola out, which is a special case, you know, there's some refinancing that went on, made it loans peak in 2015, 2016. But if you take Angola out, the lending actually peaked in 2013. In the first year? In 2013. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that was the year that the Ethiopian and the Kenyan railways were signed. So those are the years of signing of loans. And so it's been going down. In 2019 was, I think it was about $9 billion that we saw. And then this past year is about $2 billion. But that's during the pandemic. I mean, for, for 2020, we don't have 2021 data yet. I think at the beginning of the chat, you mentioned that perhaps things might be looking up because of the problems with the domestic Chinese property market and companies, construction companies might therefore be lobbying the government a bit to be able to build more, get more loans for building abroad to help froth things up a little bit. Is that what you expect the trend to be then? or? Well, what we're seeing is the very, very recent announcements just a few days ago about infrastructure. There's going to be an emphasis on infrastructure back in China because they need to stimulate the economy. And just like after the global financial crisis in the United States, what the Obama administration did was infrastructure. They built roads and they fixed bridges and all of this because that stimulates economic activity. It has great multiplier effects. So that's what the Chinese are going to do, which is not great news for overseas infrastructure. So we're not actually expecting that this will be happening outside because the stimulus effect of that is going to be negligible. It'll stimulate, you know, some demand for factory goods and things like that, supplies of steel and materials. But what they really need right now is to stimulate that back in China. They're looking now to really keep economic growth rates high. So Build Back Better World, B3W, this new G7 initiative, has anything actually happened (laughs) other than some vague G7 statement, I think, last year? Is this in any way proportional to China's BRI? No. (laughs) So far, it is pretty much still messaging. And of course, the Trump administration set up the Development Finance Corporation under the BUILD Act. And that's been in place for a few years, just a couple of years. So we've seen, they've had one annual report. We've seen some results from what's happening. It's a assembling together of our old Overseas Private Investment Corporation, or OPEC, 
and then some other aspects of different parts of some parts of USAID that are now put into this Development Finance Corporation. I actually think it's a great idea to set that up, but it's not that clear to me yet what they're going to do. They're trying to have some magic of bringing in foreign investors that they can maybe do blended finance where there would be some subsidies and that would help offset some of the risks and some of the commercial finance. It's really, it's not that clear yet how it's going to work because it is challenging. And the Chinese are finding it's, it's challenging. You could do a lot of infrastructure, but now it's challenging to get, you know, the pandemic was a black swan event, of course. No one expected that. But already it was even by 2018, it was clear that there were a number of countries. It was still, you know, a couple of handfuls at that point that were having trouble generating the revenues to repay these infrastructure loans. So I don't know who's actually going to be doing this investment. It's going to be challenging. Under the Trump administration, the big project that when the U.S. Exxon Bank got refunded, their great big project was to put, it was almost $5 billion into a natural gas project off the coast of Mozambique. So this was a big multi-billion dollar project. Our Exxon Bank funded part of it. And then there were U.S. companies, I think ExxonMobil, maybe others that were involved in that. That's really competing with the Chinese. I suppose they had a separate project. I think this also still going forward. But then Mozambique ends up terribly unstable. And there have been terrorist attacks and separatist movements in that area where the uh, natural gas reserves are very risky. It's really not something that we can look at as a development project. It's fossil fuels, you know, cleaner than oil, but it's not something we can look at and say, yeah, look, we're doing a lot better than the Chinese. <laughs> yeah. You run Kerry at Johns Hopkins here in D.C. You've testified on China before Congress. I'm sure you speak to a lot of policymakers here in D.C. privately. So first, I wanted to ask, what are the biggest differences between the public actions and public comments of policymakers and your private conversations with these same policymakers when it comes to China-related issues? You know, it's hard to group everybody together like that. There's a group of people who are maybe too busy to do much reading, who still have a lot of the headlines of what they think the Chinese are doing, and they don't really have the details. So they're the people who still buy into this idea that the Chinese are deliberately trying to get countries to borrow for things that they can't possibly repay, and then so they could seize those assets. So there's that kind of aspect. And then there are others who think that the Chinese are trying to export their model overseas. And usually, again, these are people who don't really have a deep knowledge of China or what they're doing. So again, they're just looking at these kind of headlines. And then there are others that, and by this idea of them exporting their model, they're trying to actually foster this idea of uh, authoritarian capitalism or you know non-democratic development model. That's not what I see. I think whenever people actually do research on something or read what the people who go into the field to look at these projects, what they're doing, they tend to come up with a much more nuanced perspective, much more balanced. But people are busy in Washington, you know, especially the top level policymakers. They only have time to get fed just, you know, tiny bits of things. And it's sometimes hard to shift into a more nuanced perspective. But I do see a, compared to the Trump State Department, for example, our State Department now under Biden, it has a, a much more balanced perspective. 
from what the Chinese are doing. I think they're better informed. If you had to give or assign, because you're a professor, some of these high up State Department or whatever, any type of policymaker across any department interested in Chinese issues, what book or article or reading would you assign? One of the best books that's come out recently is by a colleague of mine who's retired recently, Mike Lampton, who is a professor of Chinese studies and two of his former students. It's called Rivers of Iron. It's called Railroads and Chinese Power in Southeast Asia. And this is an example of it's far deeper and really interesting book about how these railway projects were designed and how they are being rolled out in Southeast Asia and how differently it works in places like Indonesia, Laos, Thailand, Malaysia, and how the local politics really do affect and determine the outcomes. Local governments have a lot of agency on this. So this Rivers of Iron, I would put in a big plug for that. There's another book by a colleague who's teaching in Australia. He's also American, Jamie Riley, and he has a book called Orchestration. It's also about the BRI, but it's about how Chinese government and companies and the provinces, this way of like an orchestra, like someone's conducting an orchestra, but it's more like a jazz orchestra in a way. It's how they work together in a more coordinated fashion than the way we do it here. But it's not as though it's all directed, as though the person conducting the orchestra controls it all. So that's really helpful. And both of them are based on a lot of deep field work. So they aren't just people who kind of sailed in for a week or two to get some local color into their books and then shot away again. And there are a number of books out there like that. Yeah, Yuan Yuan Eng came out with one on China, how China escaped the poverty trap. And she came up with a similar type of model to this Jamie Riley's orchestration. She called it directed improvisation, but it was basically you have this CCP, which is the director, but the director doesn't tell the actor everything to do. The actor has some leeway to bring their own thing to any performance, or at least a good director does. And so that was her model. It sounds very similar to what your colleague Jamie Riley was getting at. Well, I would recommend anything that Yuan Van Nine writes. She's <laughs> she's wonderful. I mean, her focus has been on China, not so much how China operates overseas. So I was trying to focus on those. Well, that's all the questions I had for our conversation. Deborah Braudigam, thank you very much for the chat. I very much enjoyed it. Curtis, this was so much fun. Let's do it again. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org.